about 32 years ago, um, I had an experience with Jesus that changed the trajectory of my life. Um, a good friend of mine invited me to a fellowship of Christian athletes meeting. Everybody know FCA? Um, invited me to an FCA meeting that uh, one of our teachers led in his home. And this friend of mine was like a true fisher of men, or at least that's the way I like to think of it, because he had great bait. Um, he uh, told me there was hot girls there, and that's really all I needed. Um, and so I went. Um, I'm not sure which discipleship book promotes that style of evangelism, but, uh, but it worked for me because not only did I go to the FCA meeting, but uh, not long later when FCA was taking a trip uh, down to Kemper Arena to watch the power team, um, I went. Anybody remember the power team? They were these huge muscle-bound dudes that used to, like, break things and bend things and... Yeah, carrying a refrigerator on their back, tearing a phone book in half. Like, they used to do all this crazy stuff. And then talk about what Jesus had done in their life. And this was, I was in high school. My whole life was football and weightlifting. And I was like, these guys were gods. Like, and I was, and so, uh, so yeah, so I went um, only because the hot girls were going. And, uh, and I was a, a Catholic. I had a very simple faith in God. But the way that these people on stage talked about this Jesus that I had heard about my entire life, but never like this, was completely new to me. Um, as kind of giant after giant told their story and testified um, about the impact that Jesus had had on their lives, I was hooked. And it was as if they only had enough Jesus for the first ten people to the altar because I literally sprinted down the aisle when they gave an altar call. And uh, I was completely and totally sold and ready to dive in. So I was radically excited about this new understanding of Jesus, and uh, and I, I was getting obnoxious to like everybody around me because I was so excited about Jesus, and uh, I was actually annoying the people that had like invited me to FCA in the first place. Um, they were like, "Dude, mellow out!" And so uh, my best friend Chad thought it was time for me to meet the Pentecostals. It was it, it was he was ready. It's time to meet. He knew some real holy rollers, and he thought that. Uh, with my newfound enthusiasm for Jesus, I would fit right in. And let me tell you, I did not. I was, <laughs> this Catholic, albeit excited, but still Catholic teenager, was not ready for good old-fashioned Pentecostal worship. I was so confused from beginning to end, and my head was spinning when I left. I honestly, within a couple of weeks, uh, my fervor for Jesus had kind of mellowed out a little bit. Um, I wasn't sure if... Uh, if what I'd witnessed at that church was the greatest thing or the craziest thing I'd ever seen. But um, whatever it was, it was a one-time thing for me, I thought. My passion about Jesus at school had begun to drive away some of the people I was doing life with. And so I found it wasn't fun being alone. And so I kind of toned down my excitement and learned to be a respectable, well-mannered um, Christian like everybody else I knew. Um, and this allowed me to get my friends back and back to life. Uh, as I had always known it before that crazy encounter with an altar at Kemper and a Pentecostal church. Um, and then a couple of years later, when my life uh, had kind of fallen apart, or at least the way I thought my life was supposed to be lived fell apart, um, nothing was going as planned. I felt completely out of control, and I just knew that the way I was doing life, um, I couldn't do it anymore. And, uh, and that's when I collided with God uh, for real. Um, he confronted kind of my narcissistic tendencies to focus on my own pain or my own happiness, just myself. Uh, and just for a moment, while actually pumping gas um, at this little gas station in Lansing, Kansas, 
God revealed how my attention uh, to his presence and his glory um, had gone away. And, uh, and I can't really explain it, but what I experienced in that moment was awe. Um, and I heard a definition for awe that I think is one of my uh, favorite definitions. It's to find yourself in a moment that shrinks you and, and, and that shrinking feels good. Like we're, we're kind of wired to not like feeling small. We don't like things that make us feel small. When someone says something that makes us feel small, we push against that. But awe is that moment when you're made to feel small and that feels good. It's, 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 it's taking it away as a net positive that you were just shrunk. And that's what I experienced standing there. And though um, uh, it's much easier to see through hindsight now than it was in that moment, my life changed the moment I felt that awe. Um, and all I knew for sure was that um, what I needed more than anything was to worship, uh, which to me at that time meant only one thing. I needed to find those lunatic Pentecostals because in my life at the time, um, they were the only people that I knew that seemed to know how to respond to this feeling that I was feeling um, because though I didn't understand much uh, about anything they did or said, Quite literally, because they were speaking in tongues and I had even no idea what that was. Um, the way that they worshiped Jesus, at least for me watching on the outside, felt like what my soul was crying out for after that encounter with God on 7 Highway. So within a couple of weeks, I was dating my Pentecostal wife-to-be, deeply rooted in that Pentecostal church and spending literally every um, single evening of the week in a very Pentecostal small group. Uh, and I was learning what it meant to be part of a community. I was learning the Bible. I was learning uh, things that Christians tend to do and not do. I was really, really clumsy at that part. Still kind of am. Um, but the one thing I was learning most was how to worship. And we sang music to Jesus everywhere. Uh, we sang at church. We sang at dinner. If you were with our send friendy, our wow, that was a fun friend, Cindy. Um, you sang at Sam's or at the post office or wherever and loud. Um, we worshiped with our hands in the air. We worshiped with our faces on the ground. We worshiped while dancing and jumping and kneeling. Um, the first church that Esther and I went to after we left the church we got married in, we chose because the worship was amazing. The music was incredible. We didn't even really like the preaching. We knew it wouldn't be like a forever home, but we were just like soaking in the worship. Shortly thereafter, um, I started learning guitar. I went and bought a guitar, not because I wanted to be a rock star or because I just had so much music in me I had to let out, but because I wanted to facilitate worship. Um, these were the days before you could pull your phone out and listen to you know amazing worship at the drop of a hat. Uh, and so I wanted to be able to have a worship service at any time, anywhere, with anything. I took my guitar with me everywhere. Um, actually, Esther and I went to, this is when I was learning and I was still in the like grips of the learning process. Um, we went on like a marriage retreat weekend and I took my guitar and anytime we had a minute I was practicing. Yeah, that was not my best day. Um, but Esther and our, my honeymoon, if you can call it that, wasn't really a honeymoon. We went with like 40 or 50 other people to the worship conference. Um, so not much of a honeymoon. But somebody did spring for us to have our own room. Everybody else was doubled up. We got our own room. So it was kind of a, you know, she will not let me call it a honeymoon no matter how hard I try. Um, 
And this is the first time I learned that worship reveals a lot about a person's temperament and personality, um, which was new to me. I assumed that there was a right way and a wrong way to worship. There was the way. And then I saw Todd worshiping. And we were in this, we're with 25,000 other people in this huge auditorium. They're singing How Great Thou Art, and everybody is singing at the top of their lungs. And if you know that song, it pulls it out of you. I've always wondered, like, when you write that kind of music, what do you do afterwards? Like, do you just go golfing? Like, dude, I nailed that one. That was a great song. I, I, like, that song has always just gripped my soul. And so we're in the middle of that song. Everybody in the place is red-faced and singing, then sings my soul and blah, blah, blah. And our whole group is tears running down faces. Everyone's bawling. And I look over and Todd is doing this. And I was like, being the nosy person I am, I was like, dude, what's wrong with Todd? Something's got to be wrong with Todd. And so I kind of fight through the crowd a little bit. And I get down next to Todd. And I'm, I'm worshiping next to Todd. And I'm watching him out the corner of my eye. And he's just stone-faced. And so finally, I can't take it anymore. I, I tap him on the shoulder. And I was like, I was like, what do you think? And he goes, oh, my God, this is incredible. I've never seen anything like it. This is the nuttiest thing I've ever seen. I love Jesus. <laughs> Went right back to it. He was deep in it in his own way. It was crazy. So that's what I kind of learned that we don't always uh, all worship the same way. Well, I open up with this long kind of winding story about my relationship to worship for three reasons. Number one. I needed an opener, let's be honest. Um, number two, second, um, it does bear, uh, actually bear on today's passage quite a bit. But third, and here's my disclaimer, um, I think I may get a little preachy this morning. Um, I got a little preachy last week, I asked permission first, but, um, but I had several people text me this week and was like, dude, I love it when you get preachy, you should do that more often. So if I get worked up and this morning and upset you, I'll give you their numbers and you can call them and, text them your frustrations instead of me. Um, But seriously, uh, if I do get worked up about this topic, I want you to know that this subject is near and dear to my heart. Um, And as much as I have changed and grown and expanded theologically and practically and methodologically, um, my deep inner need to worship Jesus um, has been at the center of who I am um, since the first time I grasped my own smallness in relation to God's bigness while putting gas in my little Nissan truck at sunset. Um, and so this is Palm Sunday, which officially marks the beginning of Holy Week, as we've said. Uh, and this is the morning we traditionally commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The lectionary this uh, year has us reading Luke's account of that story. All four gospel writers gave an account. The lectionary gives us Luke's account. Um, so we're going to start this morning with the passage. I'm going to be reading in Luke 19, if you want to follow in your own Bible or app, um, starting in verse 28. Uh, OFAM, if you um, want, you can hit the link in the bulletin, uh, and, and the slides will be there. Otherwise, you can uh, use your own Bible or, or however you want to follow, or just listen. Uh, so after telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the town of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. 
So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all the followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on heaven and glory in the highest heavens. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd, teachers, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into, into cheers. This is the word of the Lord. Last week I, I mentioned my Palm Sunday sermon from last year. Um, and I recommended that everybody give that sermon a listen um, because I did a really deep dive into the history of this text. Um, and honestly, I came up with a little different perspective of Palm Sunday than I had had before. Um, so what we're going to actually do today is start with my conclusion from last year, which normally I wouldn't do. I hate making claims without giving kind of the full exegetical track that I went down to come to that conclusion, but we do not have time to go down that um, entire journey. Matt, don't say amen. And the recording is still available on YouTube or the website um, or the podcast, whichever, which you can find on iTunes or Google Podcasts or whatever. It's, on the, it's in the At Jesus series, week six. Um, I walked through the way the, um, the, the history and the logical progression and everything that I used to come to this conclusion this morning. Because the picture that most of us have gotten from passion plays and movies where the entire city of Jerusalem is welcoming Jesus um, into the city with worship and, and the waving of palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a skewed picture. Um, very, very unlikely that that's how it happened. Um, in fact, it seems to me that Jesus was intentionally trying to create a juxtaposition between that kind of throng, thronging, fawning entrance um, with the real picture of what the upside-down kingdom looks like. Last year, we actually read this account. It said, gates open, and the progression, the progression begins. Thousands line the street, throwing flowers and laurels, waving madly, reaching to touch power as it passes. Security guards watch the crowds for dissonance, agitators, and zealots, intent on doing harm. The man coming through the gate sits tall in a saddle, looking every bit the champion he is meant to be. A mantle of authority rests easily on his shoulders, as he climbs highly or higher to the center of the city, taking his rightful place as Lord Protector of these people. This is a translation of a historical account, one of many similar accounts uncovered by archaeologists, describing the arrival of Pontius Pilate into Jerusalem uh, at the beginning of Passover week. Uh, because religious festivals in that day, um, in the days when kind of gods were territorial, religious festivals had a tendency to also be patriotic festivals, um, where you're, you know, you're, you're celebrating your people. And so, uh, Rome made sure that the governor was always present at these religious festivals to make sure that the kind of patriotic fervor didn't build up too much. Um, and so Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea Philippi, a ways from Jerusalem. But he know, we know he was in Jerusalem the week Jesus died uh, because he was there for the trial. We don't know if exactly when he got there this week. But all historical accounts show, have him showing up at the beginning of the Passover week, which is also the time that the gospel writers have Jesus showing up. Um, and so what actually seems to be happening here in these triumphal entry accounts is that while the kind of usurping ruler 
of Israel, surrounded by power and military might and pomp and, and guards and gathered crowds, um, is, is coming in one gate of the city. The real king of glory on a young donkey, not exactly a symbol of power and glory, surrounded by a relatively small group of people who are dedicated followers worshiping him. Um, and, and they're large enough to draw the attention of the crowd. In, my, in some of the other accounts, they say the people in the city were going, who is this? Who are they singing to? Like, so it wasn't the whole city worshiping. This is a small group of Jesus followers coming in with him. Um, but they're, they're also small enough that when the Pharisees start to say, hey, you need to quiet down, everybody can hear the Pharisees. So they're small enough they can be kind of spoken over, but large enough to draw some attention. Um, and so in today's version, this little band of worshipers drew the ire of these um, uh, Pharisees, who ironically could hear, be heard just fine. And, and they tell uh, the, Jesus to rebuke his celebrants. Hey, you need to shut them up. Um, and this is, there's a unique part of, of Luke's account versus the other accounts. Um, and that's the relationship between Palm Sunday and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem from Galilee. And we call this the travel narrative. It's a really interesting look if you ever want to go look at it. Um, and it begins actually way back in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 51. Um, Luke says this. Um, whoop, what just happened? Oh man, I think my... Battery's dying. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus uh, resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. We just kind of read that like it's no big deal. But he's leaving Galilee, okay, which is clear up here. That's Galilee. That's where Jesus did the vast majority of his ministry. That's where the Sea of Galilee is. That's where a lot of the things we, we hear him talking about. Nazareth is up there. Um, that's where the majority of, of Jesus' time was spent. Uh, and I don't want to go through all the history, but Galilee was considered part of Israel. Um, the, the, the orangish brown area in the bottom. Uh, it was part of the northern kingdom that had, um, nope, I'm not going to do that. We're not going to go through all that. Um, so, and Jesus was from Galilee, up in Nazareth. And that's where he, we grew up. Well, Luke tells us he left Galilee to head for Jerusalem. And it was very normal to, to come to Jerusalem for the festivals. And, uh, and to do that, he had to travel through, um, Samaria. Which is, which is that piece in the middle. And that's where the Samaritans lived. And we all know the Samaritans. Nobody liked the Samaritans in Israel. So the Samaritans were kind of the bad guys. Well, Jesus spins from chapter 9 to chapter 19 in Samaria. And so it's really interesting to go listen to the sermons that he preaches there. Um, because you, we have this tendency to imagine he's just preaching it to you know, Jews. He's actually giving a lot of those parables and preachers to people who were considered outsiders. So it's a really interesting look at how you talk to people about Jesus, and that's where he also uses a lot of parable. He doesn't speak a lot of, like, Bible language and, you know, and Christianese. Like, so it's really interesting to hear how Jesus talks to, to people who aren't considered the in crowd. He uses pictures and images and, and metaphor, which is interesting. And then uh, in chapter 19, the chapter we're today, Luke and Luke hits a lot of markers along the way to tell you where Jesus is. I won't go through all those; it would take too long. But in chapter 19, he arrives in Jerusalem or Jericho, which is right on the border. So he comes from Galilee, all spends a lot of time in Samaria, lands in Jericho, 
um, before going to Jerusalem, which is just barely south of there. So Luke actually records Jesus' whole journey and him showing up in Jerusalem when he left from Galilee. Um, and the reason I explain all this is because Jesus is pretty much a newcomer in, in the Jerusalem scene. He just showed up. He's been way up north for a long time. And he just shows up in Jerusalem. So the idea that the entire city is going to like roll open the gates and welcome him um, is very unlikely, especially considering Rome is always present to make sure that the kind of uh, fervor doesn't get too big and things like insurrections or things like new kings don't come rolling in the gates. And so um, our picture of, of this huge city worshiping Jesus is very unlikely. This is a group of faithful followers who are waving their palm branches and singing. Um, as I said, I went into much more detail in last year's sermon, but suffice it to say, um, Palm Sunday uh, isn't about Jesus being kind of universally worshipped by everybody. Palm Sunday is about drawing a line in the sand. It's about, uh, it, it's about, it's binary. It's ones and zeros, true, false, yes or no, do or don't. It's about Pilate with his big, fancy, important things or Jesus. It's a choice. Palm Sunday is about choosing, am I going to be in this small band of Jesus followers or am I going to be in the throngs welcoming Pilate? At the bottom of that choice, at the heart of that choice, at the absolute root of that choice is worship. And it's the, it's the Pharisees that really draw out the dichotomy. It says, but some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, if I, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into, te- into cheers. Now, before we uh, start judging the Pharisees kind of unfairly, it is meant to note that this particular group of uh, Judaism was also unhappy about the throngs welcoming Pilate. They weren't like Pilate followers. They were, uh, they're just trying to defend the honor of God. And since they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, um, they're really just doing their duty to preserve the glory of Yahweh. They just missed it. Um, and uh, the language and metaphors around Jesus' entrance were so sacred and prophetic um, that it wasn't so much that Jesus was, they were worried that Jesus was swaying a large crowd of people. Um, it was more that um, this small band of followers were playing around with some really serious themes. Like, you know, they're, they're, the Hosanna, Hosanna, that was a prophesied statement. The palm branches and the, and the cloaks on the floor, those were, those were symbolic moments. The, the young donkey is straight out of Zechariah 9. That's a prophetic moment. And they recognize that this little group of people were playing some pretty big games. And that's why they're like, hey, you've got to shut this down. It's like hearing a kid say a cuss word. Where you're like, it makes you chuckle, and, you're, and it's kind of cute. Let's be honest; it's like funny, and and uh, but then you're also like, whoa, 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 buddy, we don't use that word. Like you still, even though you know it, it's not serious. It is serious, and so you're like, hey, we don't, buddy, we don't say that word. Um, I think that's kind of what the Pharisees are doing with their. As the, as the followers of Jesus are playing out this ancient prophetic drama that everybody understood, um, the followers were doing these things and shouting things that completely fit the prophetic stream. And the Pharisees are kind of like, whoa, 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 not funny any longer. Okay, you know what that means. Knock it off. Shut it down. Like, those are, those are big things you're saying. And, and you can't do that. So they, they step in to shut it down. And this is what I love about Luke's account. Ending with this statement about worship. 
that if, if these people were to stop worshiping me, the rocks would do it. Because Pharisees are about protocol. They're about formalities. They're about um, what is proper, what's done, what's simply not done. The Pharisees are about religion. And Jesus, Jesus says it. Religion can be shut down. Religion can be controlled. Religion can be dictated and mandated and administrated. But worship is not that way. Worship, real worship, you cannot, will not, must not do what it's told. Real worship comes from inside of us. It's something that we barely have control over. Real worship is something that comes pouring out of you when you find yourself in that moment of awe. In that moment of shrinking. When you shrink in the light of who Jesus is and that shrinking feels right. And all of our, all our soul wants to do is make Jesus bigger and bigger because our heart knows in worship that we are the right size. We're the size we're supposed to actually be. Because sometimes our lives get too big for us to handle. There's too many things going on and there's too many issues and too many problems and we don't know how to think about all of it at the same time. And something about worship shrinks our life down to something manageable and something we can actually handle. There's a story that I love where this woman comes in, there's a room full of stuffy religious people, and Jesus is in there, and he's been already kind of challenging people, and this woman that Jesus had helped comes to worship him. And the Bible tells us she lets down her hair and washes his feet with her hair. And what we miss in that is that is a completely and utterly scandalous moment. The Talmud, which is the rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament, and it's the commentary that Jesus and, and the people in Jesus' day would have read. So it kind of colored their understanding of the Old Testament. In the Talmud, it was illegal for a woman to have her hair down in public. A husband could divorce his wife if she had her hair down in public. If she left the, ha- the house with her hair down, it was so racy that a husband could divorce her for adultery just for having her hair down. And so it was just not done. Like women, women did not go out with their hair down. So for her to walk in this room and drop her hair in front of all these men to, to wash his feet is a, like everyone would have been blushing. And, like, and, and what they say is, and we always assume they know her background, but what they say is if he knew, if he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman that is. And he wouldn't allow her to touch him. And, and, and yet he, Jesus calls out her worship. Because it didn't make any sense. Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't protocol. It, it didn't fit that these are the things you do and the things you don't do. And she did not even care. She was like, this man saved me and I will worship him. Only in worship, singing about someone bigger than you, pointing at someone bigger than you, raising your hands and surrender to someone much bigger than you, does our life get manageable. Shrunk down to something that actually fits. When God spoke to me that first time on 7 Highway, not audibly because that's way too quiet, but in my heart where it can be so much louder, that first time that God spoke to me, I knew absolutely nothing about anything. I didn't know anything about the Bible or faith or the Christian life, but I did know that I'd only met one group of people who seemed to know how to act in that kind of a presence. And those people seemed crazy to me and weird and a little backward. But they were worshipers. And, and in light of the way I felt, worship was the only thing that made sense. It was the only response that made any sense. 
And that idea, the idea that worship makes sense, seems to be what the point that Jesus is making. See, when he says that the rocks would cry out if the, if the worshipers didn't, a whole lot of people make connections between that and David saying things like, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the skies declare his craftsmanship. Day and night, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without sound or word. Their voices are never heard. That, that Jesus is making some, some comment about how nature worships. And, and maybe he is. That I'm sure he is to some extent. But I think it's likely that Jesus is just using hyperbole to say, you Pharisees do not get it. Worship is what you do in this moment. It's the only right thing to do. It's the only thing that makes sense. You'd have to be dumb as a rock to miss that. No, scratch that. The rocks would get it. <laughs> Worship is the only thing that makes sense. This is what Paul says in, in Romans 12 too. He says, give your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It is your reasonable act of worship. It is the only thing that makes sense. What else would you do in light of who God is and who you are? And there's something weird about Christians anyway, right? This is, if you ever think about what we do, it's really kind of bizarre. I mean, think about what we do every week. We gather for a concert performed by amateur musicians who are playing music intentionally written to be sung by the crowd, not the band. So that's weird. And then we sit and listen to someone give a speech for like 30 minutes. (laughs) Mixed in some prayers and liturgy and we call that church. And it's really a weird thing to do if you think about it. And what's even weirder is there's now an atheist church in England. It's actually a denomination of of several churches. And there are people who don't believe in God, but they've... um, They've figured out that there is some value in gathering together, uh, in controlling people's behavior and making them nicer people. You gather once a week and they build some relationships and listen to somebody stand up and tell them not to be a jerk. It's so weird because we used to have the people who are like, I have no problem with God and Jesus. It's organized religion. Now there's even people going, I have no problem with organized religion. It's all that God stuff. Bizarre twist. But they, but it's actually, there's people that go and there's, there's quite a few little churches that do that now. And that's what they do. And many of the people who attend, when, when, who were used to going to church growing up, when they're interviewed, they say it kind of fills that religious void and that need for ritual that, that, they, that they were missing after leaving Christianity. Because the services are remarkably similar to a, a normal church service, except for one thing. Guess what's missing? There's no songs. There's no one to sing to. So they don't do, they don't do any music. There's no singing. I mean, if you don't believe in God, who are you going to sing to? Like, why would you sing? There is no worship in, in the Atheist Church of England. No one's comfortable singing about the glory of humanity. That feels gross and creepy. And the heart instinctively knows that's futile. But if there's nothing bigger than you, who do you worship? And that's the question I want to wrestle with this morning. Who do you worship? Or what in your life is big enough to fill you with that passion that makes you get excited? And to feel like if I don't get excited, the rocks will do it. Because if you get louder, 
<laughs> Look out. If you get louder for the Chiefs than you do for Jesus. If you get louder at your kid's soccer game than you do in the presence of Jesus. If you get more excited about who's running for office than you do for Jesus. I told you I was going to get preachy. If you get more pumped up about the next episode of whatever you're streaming and binging right now than you do for Jesus. Give me a minute. I think I'll get everybody. If you get more moved in your soul by keeping rules than you do for Jesus, or or about the new book on theology, I had to throw myself in there too, than you do for Jesus, or your upcoming vacation, or your new home renovation, if you get more excited about any of that stuff than you do for Jesus, then none of those things are bad, that's the thing, none of those things are bad. My heart would be that you scream your head off for the chiefs, and then come here and scream your head off more for Jesus. Because none of those things are bad. They're only bad when they're bigger in your heart than Jesus. When they bring out more of your soul and more of your song than Jesus. Because seriously, what is receiving your worship? What has such a grasp on your heart that you can't stop your voice, even if you try? And more importantly, what do you need to do to catch the bus of Jesus worshipers before it passes? Because that's what happens in today's story. That's the scary part about what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He's basically saying this moment is so poignant. It's so powerful. This moment is so fleeting that worship is going to happen whether you get on or not. Worship will happen even if not a single person in Jesus' company decides to worship. The rocks will do it if needs be. Neither you nor I are essential to worship. That's the scary part. Every single time anyone in the Bible has a vision of of heaven or God's throne... There's throngs of angels worshiping. It's going to happen no matter what. We are invited to that. We have this tendency to feel like our lives are somehow in our control and we can decide if we want to go in deeply or or if we want to engage on any given day. Maybe I'll worship today or maybe I'll focus on me for a while and what I need. And Like worship is just one of the things on the menu. And that's not evil. We all do it. But Jesus in this moment is playing out a 1,700 year old prophetic scene as he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Literally a once in the history of the world moment. And and a small group of his followers are there to experience the awe of that moment and to name it in song. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pouring out their hearts in worship. And so many others just let that moment slip by. They miss it. And the thing I love about this moment is this is, this is, this is who Jesus is. This is them worshiping who Jesus is. This is before he went to the cross. This is before he raised from the dead. This is before he had saved their souls and they had anything like eternal to thank him for. They just love who he is and they want to declare it. That's what I love about Palm Sunday. 
Because it's about worshiping who Jesus is. They were deciding whether or not to worship that day. They were, the, the Pharisees, they, they were missing it. They were missing something that was happening already. They let the bus go by. They were missing a day so important that the rocks would join the choir rather than miss that day. Which begs the question, what about us? Palm Sunday is a choice. Palm Sunday is different because it's a choice. Where are we going to stand on that day? Do we stand in line with the bulk of the city and scream and shout for Pilate? Or some other political figure? Hello. Or whatever is trending today? Are we going to be in that group, giving our worship to that we're going to stand with the Pharisees so consumed with getting it just right and playing referee over everybody else's bad theology that we miss our opportunity to just worship? Or do we throw down our proverbial cloak? I love that Jess said that. And pick up our palm branch and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? This is the last week of Lent. I don't know how many of you are fasting or still fasting, but one more week. I'm so ready. So, of course, this is when the temptation comes, right? I mean, Matthew tells us that Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was hungry. And then the tempter shows up. That's why Holy Week is so important. And he shows up with bread and Bible promises at the very end, probably when Jesus was at his most exhausted, most desperate, Satan tempts him with what? If you will fall down and worship me. Satan's greatest and final temptation, the real humdinger, was about worship. Think about that. Satan offers Jesus all the temptation there is to offer. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. To anyone who knows anything about worldly power and wealth, that means the whole kit and caboodle, sex, power, money, enjoyment, luxury, everything is wrapped up in that moment. And all that temptation, maybe all temptation, was attached to worship. See how subtle that is? Satan didn't say, I'll give you all of this and all you have to do is take this drug. It's all yours and all you have to do is give in to this sexual temptation. No, Satan knows that it starts with worship. All the rest is easy if he can get your worship. If he can lure away your worship, he has no problems with the rest. Timothy Keller always says, if you want to change your behavior, change what you worship. See, I don't think that temptation happens as bluntly as Matthew Spelled it out there. Remember, Jesus is in the desert alone, so the only way Matthew gets this story is because Jesus told it to him. So this story comes kind of filtered through Jesus' retelling. I'm taking a little poetic license here, but I, I think Satan just offered Jesus the world. And Jesus was the one who was able to actually see what was underneath that. At least that's the way I think it plays out for me, because Satan doesn't usually come to me and ask me to worship him. That will be a hard no. Right. Who has trouble with that temptation, right? 
And I wish that's the way it worked. I wish Satan just came and said, Chris, worship me. You know you want to. I'd be like, ah, uh, no. Not gonna, I'll pass. Thanks. No, but it comes, Chris, look at all these things you could chase and give your life to and live your life for. And Jesus is smart enough to see underneath that and say, that's called worship. I know what that is. I know what you're offering me. And only God is worthy of my worship. So as we stand here facing the end of our Lenten journey for this year, I think it's right that we face that same temptation. What are we going to worship? Where are we going to stand on Palm Sunday 2022?